Do you ever wonder about how the resources of the world are divided? Uh, does, it ever, um, does it ever bother you uh, that, that there are so many people who have so little and others who have so much? Maybe we don't even think that much about it. Until there are things like the uh, banking crisis of a few years ago. And we watch seemingly as the rich get richer and the poor don't. There's something about the way in which the world operates when it comes to things like wealth. That at the very least sort of stirs a little bit of animosity in us. When I read Psalm 49, I get a sense that there is something of that stirring in the mind of the writer. And he's talking about the wealth of the world. He's talking particularly about those who are the wealthiest. And when we talk about people who are the wealthiest, we start thinking about things like the rich getting richer. When we think about that, we, and we start feeling very negative about people who have a lot of wealth and people who have a lot of power that goes with it and influence and clout. And we tend to think of them as people, we think of, you know, maybe someone like Scrooge, who Dickens describes as a grasping, wrenching, covetous old sinner. Or maybe we think about the man who is described in this parable we just read. Who has so much, he doesn't know what to do with all of it. And so he just hoards it. Or a few chapters later in Luke 16. Where Jesus tells the parable about the rich man who every day walks past a beggar sitting at his gate. And he ignores him. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Until the day comes when both of them face the consequences of their actions. Or maybe we think about someone like John Rockefeller who was once asked, how much does it take to make you happy? And his comment was, just a little bit more. And we, we look at that kind of mindset and we, we, we look at it with disdain. We look at it in, in a condemning sort of attitude. And, and sometimes the way in which people amass their fortune and what people do with it disturbs us. And it disturbs the writers of Scripture. It disturbs God. In this passage, in, in verse 13, the writer says, These kind of people God calls fools. In the parable, Jesus says that God called this man who hoarded all of his resources a fool. But the writer of the psalm says there's really more going on than just condemning people who might have a lot of wealth. There is this sense in which all that they have and all that it means for the world, what they control, what they amass, the clout and the influence and and the power they have is actually frightening to us who aren't in their shoes. I mean, we know. 
The people who have lots of wealth, they boast about their wealth, as the psalm says. And when we talk about boasting about wealth, I don't think it's so much of, hey, look at how much I have. But it's more this undercurrent of attitude that believes, because of what I have, I'm better than you. Because of what I have, I can get away with things that you can't get away with. Because of what I have, I have the ability to influence the world that you don't have. And quite frankly, it's true. I mean, the world is run by people who have the most. And the people who have the most tend to get away with things that bother us and disturb us. And quite frankly, it's frightening. And the writer of the psalmist says, he talks about how he is fearful because his enemies, the wicked, have all of this power. And it's frightening. And we read that and we think about that and the, and the anger starts rising up within us and we want to do something about it. And we say, yeah, the, the psalmist is exactly right. He's saying exactly what we need to hear. And then he says to us in verse 5, but why am I afraid? Why is the fact that other people have a whole lot more than I have, who have a whole lot more wealth, have a lot more power, have a lot more influence... Why does that make me afraid? I'm acting as if their wealth and power is insurmountable. And he says the answer to that is quite simple. You need to remember that eventually all of that's going to crumble. No matter how much a person has, ultimately... The grim, rip, the grim reaper is going to take it from them. Eventually, the grave levels the playing field. And he said, it doesn't matter how much you have, you can't buy your way out of dying. Now, if you have a lot of wealth, you might be able to, to delay death. You might be able to make life easier until death. But eventually, everyone is going to die. And no matter how much you have, you can't take it with you. He even says that in verse 17 to 19. He says, when they die, they take nothing with them. Their wealth will not follow them into the grave. And there are some ancient cultures where the the pharaohs and the kings would have all their wealth buried with them. But that didn't mean they took it with them. And the only people that really care about that now are archaeologists and grave robbers. And he's saying to us, look, I know that it's intimidating. All these people have all this stuff. But ultimately, we're all going to be in the same boat. And no matter how much we attempt to make it otherwise, every time we drive past a cemetery we are reminded of the futility of our efforts. But here's what I find interesting about this passage, is that it's easy for us to sit back and to say, yeah, those, those people that have all that, and we sort of make ourselves feel more special, maybe a little bit more spiritual, because we don't wrestle with those things. But the psalmist is saying, look, obsession with wealth isn't limited to people who have a whole lot of wealth. 
Because the underlying current of this whole psalm is one of the reasons why what they have bothers you so much is that you don't have it. And as we go through our lives, one of the things that reveals the struggle we have with with wealth and possessions and all the stuff of this world is that we want what other people have. We want, we're not all that unlike John Rockefeller. We all want just a little bit more. Now, there's something of that idea, wishing for more, that's built into creation. And, and it's not all bad. I mean, you think, would, wouldn't you like a little more time, a little more energy, a little more knowledge? All right, let's say it, a little more wealth. And and quite frankly, it is that desire for a little bit more that pushes us to discover and to create. It pushes us to to, uh, think about things in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. It pushes us to be better people than we would be. There uh, There is no great spiritual meaning to being lazy. To just sit back and say, well, I'm just gonna... Not worry about them. Let things happen as they happen. I have no drive and no energy. And I don't want to learn anything. And I don't want to progress anywhere. Scripture doesn't say that's a good thing. But the reality is that this desire for more can also be one of the most dangerous temptations any of us face. And see, we get, we get mixed up about it because we forget that we are just as susceptible to the grave as anybody else. We look on other people's lives and we think, man, if I just had what they had, then life would be perfect. We forget that sometimes all that people have is less of a blessing than it is a curse. I mean, I'm always intrigued by people who, who spend their lives trying to become a celebrity that people recognize, and then they spend the rest of their lives hiding from people because everywhere they go, people recognize them. Doesn't that seem weird to you? There are some advantages to not having as much as other people have. When I was little... You know, I don't know, maybe six, seven years old. I remember particularly, you know, some things stick in your mind of events in your life. I remember that I went through a period of time where I was worried every night as I went to bed that I was going to be kidnapped. I had a high self-view of myself, I'm guessing. But, you know, I, I don't know, maybe there were kidnappings going on around. I don't know, but I had this fear that I was going to be kidnapped. And it was one of those, I, I can't breathe kind of fears. I, I can't sleep kind of fears. I mean, it was real as anything. And I remember one night my mother coming in and sitting by the bed and and asking me, what's wrong? And I said, I'm scared. What are you scared of? I'm scared that I'm going to be kidnapped. And she kind of laughed. And she said, why would anyone kidnap you? We have nothing to give them. (laughs) So I was set at ease. Of course, it took a hit to my self-esteem, but that's a whole other issue. You know, there, there are advantages to that sometimes. And we don't realize all the stuff that goes with having stuff. You know, I, I keep coming back to this song in, in, in the musical Porgy and Bess by Gershwin. You know, I got plenty of nothing and nothing's plenty for me. Got no car, got no mule, got no misery. 
Then he says, the folks with plenty of plenty got a lock on their door, afraid somebody's going to rob them while they're out of making more. What for? And that song goes through my mind on a a regular basis when I think about this. It, It looks so appealing. It looks so great. And we forget that with great stuff comes great pressure. And while there is nothing inherently spiritual about being poor, because in fact, people who are poor struggle with sin and everything else, just like anybody else does. But sometimes the stuff of this world, sometimes that desire for just a little bit more eats away at our desire for what really fills us. Because the reality is, we can never get enough stuff. We can never get enough stuff. We are a culture that's always thinking about the newest, the fastest, something better, something higher, something greater. Every every company is always coming out with new, improved, expanded, faster. And we keep buying it. Because something in us believes that if I just have that, that'll do it. And the reality is it doesn't. And if we're honest, we know it doesn't. We know that stuff doesn't fill that empty void in our lives. But we sometimes don't mind giving it a shot, right? I mean, there are times where I want to say, okay, Lord, I believe that. But nobody else is going to believe it unless it's proven to them. And I am willing to be your guinea pig. You fill my life with riches and I will tell people all over the place how meaningless it all is. I will stick my head out of the sunroof of my Jaguar and I will shout it to the world. And I will climb the mast of my yacht and I will tell everybody within hearing distance that it's meaningless. And I will fly a banner behind my Lear jet so that wherever I go, people realize all this I have, it's meaningless. He's never seen fit to run me through that. You know, I'll be be a little transparent with you. And there are times where I, I, I wrestle with, Lord... Would it hurt to have a little bit more? Wouldn't I, I think I would, I would just feel so much more secure if there was a little bit more in the bank. If I owned that thing. If my IRA was a little bit higher. And I suspect... You wrestle with that too. Because it's the human condition. It's the human condition. It's part of our sinful nature to believe, despite everything we're told, and quite frankly, despite everything we realize in our minds, that if we just had a little bit more, it would do it. But it's never enough. It's never, ever, ever, ever enough. There is only one who is enough. And the writer of of Psalm 49, after he's talked about wealth and the grave and, and this obsession that we wrestle with, 
comes to the end and he talks about understanding. And he talks about people who boast of their wealth don't understand. Which implies that, that there are people who do understand. There are people who get it. And the people who get it are the people who have come to realize that only God is enough. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need things to live. And there is nothing wrong with having things to live. And there's nothing wrong with having wealth. As long as we have it in the right perspective. And again, it doesn't matter how little or how much we have how little or how much more we want. If we don't believe that God is enough, it will always leave us wanting more. Never satisfied, never fulfilled, never really sensing that deep joy and peace that God promises us. And it's a struggle because we live in a world that's always telling us continually, you need a little bit more. And as Kathleen Norris says, consumerism is rooted in this desire that we have to forget that we are mortal. And then we come to this table. And at this table, we see in a stark reality That God has shown us that he's enough. You know, God doesn't just say to us, look, believe me, I'm enough. You're just going to have to trust me on this one. God says, I am enough. And in order to prove that to you, a little baby is born in Bethlehem. And he becomes a man who goes to a cross voluntarily... And then rises from the dead and is going to reappear and take us to be where he is. And the God who is willing to go to those lengths for us is enough. And however much or little we may have, he is enough. And we can trust him to be enough. Because he is good and loving and caring. And it doesn't mean that that, that means that we're, if we trust God, that now he's going to just give us all kinds of stuff. He may, he may not. Because he's more concerned about deeper things than just stuff. He realizes that all this stuff eventually is going to spoil and fade and crumble and die and be, or be stolen by people. At some point, we're not going to have it anymore. And the only thing that we will have when our life comes to an end is the essence of who we are. And the essence of how we've lived our lives, our priorities, our dreams. And either they are in stuff and we're left with nothing, or they're in God and we've got everything. I know you're sitting there thinking probably, well, 
of course, this is what you have to say. This is church. We talk about God. God is it. And if I took a poll, I suspect that a great majority of us would say, yes, I believe God is enough. But my question for us this morning is this. Not do you believe that God is enough, but in the way that we live, do other people believe that we believe God is enough? In the way that we live, do other people believe that we believe God is enough? Someone said to me the other day, I think maybe this psalm can be boiled down to this. Remember why you're here. Remember why you were born into this world. Not to accumulate stuff, but to have an intimate relationship with our Creator. And to live in His joy and His peace and His grace and His mercy and His love. That's why we were created. Not to invest ourselves in things that are going to at some point be there no longer. But to know the one who is eternal. And to live in his grace. C.S. Lewis once said something like this. The one who has God and everything else has no more than the one who has God and nothing else. The one who has God and everything else has nothing more than the one who has God and nothing else. Do we believe that enough to trust God with whatever we have Holy Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you want more for us than just things that so easily disappear. Thank you that you want eternal big things for us. We pray that you will help us to get a glimpse of that today. To see your amazing grace poured out upon us. And to live in the truth of that grace, trusting you. Father, this morning we come to this table in in a heart, spirit of gratitude. In awe of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We pray that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake, that our lives, our hearts, our beings would be filled with your spirit, with your love, with all that you are. We pray this in the name of and power, and grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven, and he broke it. 
And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This morning we are receiving communion by the mode of intinction. It just means to dip in. As you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it, and then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar rail is always open if you would like to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you, or if you simply prefer, we have a tray of bread and cups who are happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And, and I also have gluten-free wafers and cups here as well. If uh, you need those, just let me know as you come forward. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. This might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to God, with a desire to know Him and to trust Him, then come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father.